Welcome to Spill the Tea, a bi-weekly download of life, liberty, and the latest in culture and news with your hosts, Dr. Robert McClure and Sal Nuzzo. Welcome to another episode of Spill the Tea. I am Sal Nuzzo, Vice President of Policy with JMI. Here with me is our CEO, Dr. Bob McClure. Uh, We are one day removed from primary day. Uh, The results are in. Uh, Just first question, anything surprise you? Well, I was very surprised at how successful the governor was at the school board level. I mean, I I knew that he was kind of risking his political capital. For those who may not know, uh, Governor DeSantis went um, to the school board level, uh, and it was 10 races, I think he was involved? 30 races. 30 races, I'm sorry, yeah. And he ended up winning about 25 uh, 25 of them. them. So, you know unprecedented for a state official, certainly a governor, sitting governor, to go to that level. But I think that's a reflection of what we've seen nationally, certainly a reflection of what we saw in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin when he was elected governor as a Republican just two years after Joe Biden had won that by 10 points. And the governor risked, and he won. And yep. as, as the new coach at uh, you know uh, the University of Florida says, Billy Napier, scared money don't make money. And he made the money. Yep. And, and one thing that I'd be interested in getting some data on, and it's really too early at this point to tell, I think, but how much of that flip, because you had one district, uh, it may have been Sarasota, it may have been Manatee down in the southwest Florida area, flip from a 3-2 liberal school board or progressive school board to a 4-1 conservative school board. I'm interested to know how much of that is in migration from individuals who have moved Mm. to Florida over the last five, six, seven years. And we're looking to escape the very things that were happening in those school districts, and they just had gotten fed up. And that coupled with kind of the endorsement of a very popular governor helps guide their votes when they go in. Because even someone who pays attention a lot of times, it's hard to know kind of the policy uh, kind of platforms of school board candidates are nonpartisan. You have to really pay a lot of attention and go to school board meetings to uh, kind of discern. So I think that may have been a factor in that. Uh, any other surprises? Well, I was surprised at just how badly Charlie Crist beat Nikki Freed. It was basically 65, it was basically 30 points, give or take yep. a few points. Uh, I thought Charlie Crist would win. Uh, I didn't think it would be by that much. So I would say if I'm running Nikki Freed's campaign, I would have uh, uh, some egg on my face, you know, because we were told that it was going to be a close election and it wasn't even close. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. That was probably my biggest surprise, especially as somebody who, uh, you know, for better or worse, we pay attention a lot to social media, especially to Twitter. There's a lot of activity among the political process, the consultants, the the lobbyists, the trade associations, the candidates on where the trends are. And if you were paying attention to Twitter only, you would have thought that Nikki Freed would be within either a couple of points right. or in some cases going to win by as many as double digits. I saw tweets on that. Sure. So, yeah, I'm with you there. I think the... It was um, actually embarrassing for her that yeah, she got beat that bad. Yeah, yeah. and considering she was or is still the only statewide elected Democrat, right. you would think, given Charlie Crist's original uh, uh, kind of 
Uh, he was a Republican, and then right. he was an Independent, and now he's a Democrat. Uh, yeah, that's one that my biggest surprising takeaway from that was exactly how bad the, the defeat was. Yeah, I think also at the state legislative level, you've got, uh, I think, based on kind of what we're seeing, who won, who lost, very few kind of, I use the word, you know, uh, more um, extreme, yeah. if that's the right yeah. word, for each party. Very few of those won kind of the more traditional uh, Democrats and Republicans fended off some challenges from their um, base. And so I think you're going to see a legislature that continues to be uh, very conservative. Yep. The makeup is going to be roughly 70% Republican, give or take. Not so much maybe in the Senate, but I think the Republicans uh, are going to continue to move forward. And with the governor being so, um, you know, putting all of his chips on the table, so to speak, on so many different issues. I think you're going to continue to see Florida move in that direction. I think we are maybe three seats away from a Republican supermajority, right. if my math is right. Um, one race in particular that I was paying attention to last night was down in the Florida Keys. There's a Republican representative, uh, Representative Mooney, who had a pretty sizable challenge coming from a, a more conservative, more right-leaning flank. Um, he fended off that challenge, but it got close. And there was arguably a case to be made that had the... Uh, primary gone the other way, a Democrat would have won that seat right. and flipped it. So right. uh, I saw a post from, I think it was uh, Sam Garrison, a representative from over in Jacksonville. He posted a picture of his freshman class, and I believe all of them he posted, all of them had won their primary. So they will likely all be back. Uh, with that in mind, there is one that's kind of hanging in the balance. Uh, talk about tight races. Uh, it's, it was an incumbent versus incumbent, Webster Barnaby versus Elizabeth Betterhoff, two Republicans that were in the same district uh, with just a 30, roughly 30% right. turnout. I believe the margin was only 31 votes. Wow. And so it's going to go to a machine recount, but Webster Barnaby was ahead and barring, you know, kind of a flip there in, in counts, well, he will and return. That's, that's, that's what's so difficult about an August primary is you get such low turnout. You know, people are either back in school with their children and their grandchildren or running out the last vacation or whatever the, the case may be. And so you had a lower turnout. Last thing that I thought was really interesting is that I think, you know, Tallahassee is obviously not the center of the state, but it is the capital city of the third largest state in the country, even though it's 12 miles from the Georgia state line. And we're seeing here locally uh, a move by the far left yeah. to take over the city commission, the county commission, and then ultimately move into things like the DA and the uh, police officers and the sheriff. You see that, and last night's result. So, if you have a capital city of a of a more red state than blue state that is deeply blue, deeply progressive, you think about Portland, you think about Chicago, you think about you know uh, Milwaukee. Wisconsin's not a very very blue state, but you think about those are in blue states. But what about a capital city that is very blue, but the state is red? Well, and, and it's funny you mentioned Wisconsin because actually, if you think about the 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 majority of the state, if you look at the counties, are actually more conservative. Right. But you have 
Madison, which is the, I think it may be the most highly populated city in the state of Wisconsin outside of Milwaukee, and you've got Milwaukee and Wisconsin, the capital, deeply, deeply blue. I had conversations with uh, colleagues in Madison and in Austin, Texas, who both lamented the fact that they were paying attention to Tallahassee's elections because... They're saying Florida uh, is, or, or at least the panhandle, the capital, is going the route of Austin, going right. the route of Madison, where they are either a purplish-reddish state or a deeply red state with a very, very blue capital. And that's what we're seeing. The race for the mayor of Tallahassee uh, is down to a runoff. Uh, and there's there was, in the primary, only maybe about 150, 200 votes separating um, what would probably be considered a moderate Democrat in the current mayor, John Daly, versus the progressive-backed candidate uh, and favored candidate of the far left, Kristen Dozier, and that's going to permeate into November now. So it, it's like a, a it's going to be a very uh, tough uh, match. Yeah, it really is. Moving on, uh, your favorite bureaucrat, Sal, uh, Doctor Anthony Fauci, is retiring. What are your thoughts on that? I, I December. Hmm, yeah, is that a uh, coincidence? Oh, I think it is absolutely uh, a response to the inevitable. Uh, subpoenas that are going to be laid at his doorstep by Congress, who is going to be investigating uh, and looking into a whole lot of things uh, concerning his tenure in uh, the administration. You don't think that Grandpa's going to let him go out the door? I see. Now that's one of the things that I, I'm wondering about. Can the lame duck Congress post November but pre January kind of ramp some of this up? Because I mean, more than anybody else in the federal government, I think Anthony Fauci deserves a lot of the blame for ginning up a lot of the sentiment that drove blue state governors to take on tyrannical authoritarian agendas when it came down to the pandemic. There's no doubt. And he was wrong at virtually every turn. And the CDC, you know, first there was masks don't work, then mask up, then double mask. And now, you know, we keep going. Vaccines will keep you from getting the coronavirus. Turned out not to be true. Double boosted, triple boosted, all of that kind of stuff. And now all of a sudden the CDC has said, oh, wait, sorry, never mind. None of that was, you know, we're we're, we're doing it the, a reset here at the CDC. And I think, and I may be wrong, but I think I saw a CDC guidance that said, even if you get COVID, don't let it stop you from being right. out in public. So, right. I mean, we're, we're now at that stage of this, uh, just uh, maybe two years too late. Right. Liz Cheney loses in Wyoming. Thoughts on that? Not only losing, but suffering the worst defeat by a congressional incumbent in primary history. So, I mean, I, she lost by... 30, 40, yeah, 50, something. I mean, yeah. I, I stopped counting. Yeah. And I think I heard a stat recently, and you may know this about kind of the, uh, we are now entering a phase where there will not be a Bush, a Cheney, a, uh, McCain, a McCain, or a Clinton. Or a Clinton in office since when? 1967. So, I mean, we are now entering a new era of basically Republican uh, kind of governance in that the dynasty families are now kind of in the in in the back rearview mirror, so to speak. Moving on, Sal, there are two really important issues that I want you to explain to our listeners. One is the uh, what ESG is. It's a very important issue moving forward. And the second one is you just had a piece in National Review, congratulations, uh, where you talk about these IRS agents and how insidious this is. 
Walk us through these two, but let's start with ESG. Explain to the listeners what it is and why they need to care. All right, ESG, environmental, social, and governance. You will see those three letters kind of uh, uh, put forward a lot between now and probably the 2024 presidential election. It's just going to come up. What it implies is it implies social credit scoring of investment income. And so uh, the best way to kind of make it such that you can understand it is you have a 401k, you've got a retirement plan. That retirement plan money is invested. A lot of times it's invested in big hedge funds. The three biggest hedge funds, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard control 22 trillion dollars of of our money in investments. Now, what do they do with that money? They invested in companies. And what they are doing is they are buying up shares of companies, enough of the companies to control them, and then they are using the control of that company to implement and backdoor and backdoor a far left social agenda onto those companies. So here's an example. BlackRock invests enough money in ExxonMobil, right. a, 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 an oil, fuel, petrochemical company. They invest enough money to control board seats on ExxonMobil and then use those board seats to get ExxonMobil to uh, basically try to eliminate the primary business function of ExxonMobil, which is oil and gas. Right. So that is the function of ESG. Now, why should we care? Because this drives up gas prices. This drives down your retirement portfolio. Right. That's right. This has a profound impact across everything governing the American economy. And the governor has wisely been working with the chief financial officer in Florida, Jimmy Petronas, and the Florida pension program right now, to ensure that Florida's state-funded pension program, which provides retirement for public sector employees, is not utilizing any companies that that implement ESG criteria in their investments. And we're seeing this uh, kind of reaction to that movement all across the country. So Governor DeSantis is doing it. I know other states, obviously, they always take Florida's lead or moving in that direction. Talk about some of the other states. Sure. Right now, to get a little bit in the weeds, there's two ways to go about it. Texas has taken a very surgical approach, talking only about divestments of oil and gas uh, companies. So they're they're looking solely at that. Of course. State of North Dakota has taken a more broad-based approach in their policy and is looking to expand it out because basically the social credit criteria is modeling the Communist Party of China. Right. Uh, or the Chinese Communist Party. So that's a direction North Dakota is saying to say, look, it's not just oil and natural gas. It goes to um, how a company uh, behaves and whether or not you know they have a diversity, equity, and inclusion policy. A whole host of things that the radical woke left wants the entire American economy to function like. And the Florida model is more like the North Dakota model, is it? it the Florida model is is right now. It's in a state of, of flux. So right. you know we do not have a legislative session coming up until March. But one aspect of it is looking solely at 
uh, the Florida Pension Program, and a more broad-based approach like North Dakota. Uh, I expect more policy language to come out that may even broaden the scope of that a little bit more, but uh, there's a lot going on in that, and so uh, more to come, and we'll probably want to spend some time in future podcasts diving in on it. Second huge issue is the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is just language straight straight out of 1984. We know it does nothing to reduce inflation. It's going to hurt the economy, all of those kinds of things. But I want to focus on one specific issue, which is the hiring of 87,000 IRS agents. That funding is in this bill. Now, there is some question. I've talked with both um, a member of Congress, not from the Florida delegation, who's very high up in leadership in Congress, and also heard, did not speak with, but heard Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham say, both are saying the same thing. This could not be, this may not be funded if the Republicans take the House and the Senate, but let's assume that it is funded, okay? Let's assume that it, that it is. Why is this so insidious that the uh, IRS is hiring 87,000 new agents? In your piece in National Review, if you haven't seen it, go to jamesmadison.org to see it. Sal's just just, uh, hot off the press, released this terrific piece uh, on this issue. Talk about it. Sure. Well, the the idea that we would make the tax collection agency in the federal government larger than the United States Department of Defense should frighten every single American regardless of your political persuasion. The the IRS will become bigger than the Department of Defense, bigger than the Pentagon in terms of right. the size of and scope of the organization. But let's focus in on what they will do with those additional uh, additional staffers. Do you think those you know new agents are going to be auditing uh, folks in California, folks in Illinois that are you know just hanging on because they can't leave and, and migrate to a better state? No, they are going to home in on conservative red states because that's where the money is migrating to. One of the things I pointed out was this wealth transfer over the last 25, 30 years that has occurred from states like, I call them the axis of despair, California, New York, and Illinois. The wealth and income are migrating from those states to Texas, to Florida, to Arizona, and I think Utah or Idaho is the other one. But it's largely being absorbed in large part by the state of Florida. We've we've gained, I want to say it's over $200 billion in annual income over the last 25 years from blue states. Where are those 87,000 IRS agents going to go? They're going to come to Florida and begin the process of the what I call the greatest financial shakedown of conservative states in our nation's history. Right. And so how, let's assume it's funded, how can states fight back? And again, once again, Florida is leading the country with the way it's thinking about dealing with left-wing policy. What are we doing here in Florida to to protect our citizens? And and this is where we really need to give a, a great commendation to Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Petronas for his kind of foresight on this. Uh, We picked up on uh, his four-point plan that will have some added kind of accountability measures that Florida can implement 
as this hiring and activity goes forward. You're very right. If the Republicans take over the House and, and potentially the U.S. Senate, uh, there is a possibility that some portion of that would not get funded. But that's a big if. It is. So what uh, CFO Patronus has proposed is kind of a four-point plan requiring registration of any agents doing any kind of work in Florida, some data gathering so that we can see the activity of audits and ensure that if there are audits that are happening strictly because of political or philosophical ideology. I mean, we are not that far removed from Lois Lerner and the IRS no, scandal under yes. Barack Obama. Uh, expect 87,000 potential more Lois Learners kind of trolling around looking for small businesses and, and entrepreneurs and folks who have migrated into conservative states. Uh, and it's not the... It's not the folks who work one job and get a W-2 and fill out their tax form. That's a really easy form to, to, to fill out. Uh, what they're going to be you know, kind of targeting are entrepreneurs, small businesses, mid-sized businesses. That's where the, the, the majority of economic activity happens. And they're looking to basically shake down uh, conservative states. Right. It's, it's, it's a scary situation. Uh, moving on, let's talk briefly about housing prices. They're at an all-time high. How does Florida measure up? I think we know Florida's got a little bit of a problem because the housing market is very, very high. Property insurance in Florida is very, very high. What is the solution? Because this is really kind of one of the few things that could drive Florida's economy into the ditch, despite the fact that we're you know one of the freest states in the country. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely, it's a big issue. And unlike the financial crisis and the housing crash in 2008, what we are seeing in, in the estimation of a lot of economists, and it makes total sense, is as Florida welcomes a thousand uh, folks a day in some, in some cases into the state who are fleeing these states, they're bringing with them income. And because the supply of housing is relatively, you know, a, a little bit static, it's driving up prices. It's a basic supply and demand equation. What can be brought to bear? Well, we would make the case that if you have a supply issue, get the supply right, up. Right. How does that work in the state of Florida? We've done policy papers on this in the past, talking about the impact of local zoning, talking mm -hmm. about the impact of local regulations that suppress the development of properties to get so people called up smart growth, yes. impact fees, yep. all of that kind of stuff. That was a great study we did. Now, it was a little bit more local in some of the fast-growing counties like Sarasota and, and down in that area. Um, but um, it's, it's, it, that, that is very – the regulatory and tax environment – at the local level, is truly affecting housing. And if you look at this, is the greatest example of how the left versus how the right views a policy uh, agenda. So you've got an issue. We all acknowledge there's a housing issue and, a, and an affordability issue. Uh, we would go the route of, okay, it's supply and demand. Get the supply up. Attack zoning. Attack regulations. Attack permitting delays. Attack all of these things that are driving away developers from building lower cost homes. What the left does is on display in Orlando. It may be the city of Orlando. It may be Orange County. They're going to be voting on a referendum to implement a rent control. Right. 
And what's going to happen? You're going to have shortages that will inevitably drive up the price because they're going to peg prices at a particular level so just to recoup and there won't be enough housing. This is a supply and demand issue. Rent control never works. We know that to be the case. If you have to mandate or subsidize it, be very, very skeptical. Moving on, as we speak, uh, student loans, the, the President of the United States is looking at doing some things on student loans, particularly uh, transferring $10,000 per student uh, and it's really only up to an income level. They're thinking of around 100 grand, 125. 125, grand. yeah. Yeah, transferring that money to the backs of all taxpayers. Yep. It's just a. It's it's unprecedented, um, and and it's going to create even more inflation. Correct. So a couple of things on this. Uh, one is anyone who calls it student loan forgiveness or student loan cancellation is using a misnomer, is, is, is whether purposeful or not, is buying into the notion that somehow this debt can just go away. It does not go away. Who is paying for it? You nailed it. It is every single taxpayer. And in particular, Around, I think the uh, the percentage I saw was the vast majority of the the loan uh, the the loan transfer is going from folks in the upper two thirds of the income uh, uh, in the income thresholds down to the lower third. Right. So if you are a plumber, if you are a hairdresser, if you are an electrician, if you went to a vocational school and spent in some cases ten, fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars to get your uh, plumbing license, to get your HVAC certification, to become a cosmetologist, you do not get any of that benefit or entitlement or transfer. You are paying it for the folks who spent $60,000 to go to Wesleyan and uh, take gender studies right. or leisure studies and are saddled with uh, uh, that debt burden, which they took on knowingly. Another thing I will say on this, and, and this goes to the point about housing, and it goes to your point about subsidization. What will colleges do when that debt is transferred? Are they going to lower their tuitions? They no. Never do. In no. fact, there was one school I saw a post on is already planning a $10,000 increase in tuition. Go figure. Right. Just like uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act, they gave a $7,500 subsidy for an electric car, and Ford proceeded to raise the price of their car by $8,500. I mean, it was just, it's just when you subsidize or when the government subsidizes or mandates, be very, very skeptical. Let's finish on some some fun stuff. I think it's uh, let's land on something positive. Uh, college football season starting off. I don't know if it's going to be positive for Florida State right. though. But it yeah. starts this weekend. I, I saw uh, something on Twitter that said starting this weekend we will have college football every weekend from now till the end of January. And this so, is this is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Right. That's exactly right. So. Uh, we have FSU opening this weekend. We have uh, UM and Florida opening the next weekend. UCF opens with South Carolina State on September 1st. I think of all the teams in the state, the major teams, it's going to be really – I think UM has the best chance to have the best year. You, you and UM, it's like a, you're a bandwagon hurricane. I'm What's not going even on? a hurricane fan. I'm a Gator fan. and so, But I just think you have to have a quarterback. You have to have talent around the quarterback. And you have to have a good coach. I think UM has all of those three things. I think Florida and Florida State and UCF have at least one 
question about those three variables. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say special teams. Florida State is gonna be awesome in, and this is only because I saw a really cool video of the special teams coach with the uh, a freshman. Uh, kick returner and the kick returner's waiting for the kick in practice and the coach is dousing him with a water gun Super in the sober. face. Yeah, yeah it was awesome. It's like, So we are going to kick tail on uh, on special teams at FSU this so year. So then maybe you can actually kick, execute an onside kick. We, we need an onside kick. We need a kicker. We need uh, more help at the O-line, but I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good there. Good. I think we are going to win eight Maybe nine games. Wow! Yep. For the Florida State Seminoles, yep. that's this great. Is, this is going to be a uh, this is going to be one uh, prediction we come back to. Okay, yep. We're, we'll have to put yep. this in the archives. All right, moving on. Uh, what are you watching on Netflix? Okay, two uh, two plugs I want to make for great great shows. One is a limited series uh, called The Hundred Foot Wave. Uh, I am uh, I am a lover of the outdoors. I am a beach person. Uh, I am not a surfer, but I do have this 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 amazing respect for the ocean. And if you want to just be captivated by Mother Nature and characters, you want to watch the Hundred Foot Wave. It's all about um, the quest for surfing a wave that is a hundred feet. I can't and imagine. There is only one place in the world that the potential for this seems to exist. And of all places, I'll give you one guess where it is. Uh, Off the coast of Hawaii. Off the coast of Hawaii is wrong. Off the coast of Australia is wrong. Off the coast of South Africa is wrong. It is Portugal. Navarre, Portugal, because of this underwater canyon and storms and the location of it, manages to get... All of these 70, 80, 90 foot waves that these insane men and women get towed by a jet ski to go surf. And if you want to just be captivated for a few hours on a lazy Saturday and Sunday, binge that. The other one is, do you remember the Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons, that huge brawl with the fans? and the part of my, my young adulthood. Yeah, I do yeah. remember, yes. The, uh, the, uh, the show Malice at the Palace is a great documentary. It's a one-episode deal. Ron Artest. Ron Artest, Steven Jackson, Jermaine O'Neal, they all provide a amazing commentary on this and I will say this when it happened I was like a a just I was dead set against the players on this after watching it watching the frame by frame analysis and hearing from both them and the law enforcement officials that provide some background I like I would say they got off way too harshly uh in that uh in that realm Gotcha. I uh, am late to this, but I have my wife and I are watching The Last Kingdom. Great, great, which series. is great. I mean, we're we're early in it. We're yep. early in season one, but uh, we got the recommendation and we're hooked. And yep. uh, so far, it's just absolutely terrific. Good deal. So Good deal. That's where we're moving. And, and Julie McClure likes The Last Kingdom. She so far likes The Last she's, Kingdom. She's a keeper. She, yes, she does. She yes, she uh, she couldn't watch. Game of Thrones because she thought it was gratuitous. Yep. But uh, the Last Kingdom, she's really enjoying. So she the the gratuitous 
intimacy, yes. no, the gratuitous yes. violence she's okay with. But, uh, yes, yeah, better, <laughs> yeah, better with the violence than the other. And and, and it's a and, and it's also a great character show too because yes. you've got warring factions, warring nations, warring families. Great show, highly recommend. Yeah. So I think that'll do it for this episode of Spill the Tea. I'm going to hold you to your prediction on Florida State. We're going to have to see what the over and under is. We will We will come back to that. My prediction is eight or nine. Look forward to uh, coming to you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to Spill the Tea. For more content from the James Madison Institute, follow us on social media or check out our website at jamesmadison.org.